So about 20, 25 years ago, um, I had a rare instance where a publisher asked me to write a book and they already had a title for it. Usually you have to kind of pitch the publisher and brainstorm a title. They said, we want you to write a book and we want you to call it When Life Doesn't Turn Out Like You Planned. I think that's a phrase that everybody can relate to on one level or another. And so when I approach writing a book, I kind of do the same thing as when I approach uh, an oral presentation like this. I always like to start with some sort of metaphor or symbol or some kind of story that kind of sets the stage for where we want to go. And I remember um, landing on uh, the whole idea, what better way to illustrate when life doesn't turn out like you planned than a natural disaster, uh, an earthquake, a tornado, a hurricane, a fire, a flood. You don't necessarily build your day-to-day -day life around that may happen later today, so I need to be prepared. It usually catches us off guard, doesn't it? Uh, I lived for years, uh, for 10 years in uh, Miami, Florida, so I knew hurricane uh, situations uh, pretty well. Uh, I, was, uh, I was teaching at a small Bible college in Miami, and uh, if you are in that world, you know that, that what I just said was code for uh, I was living at the poverty level, and, um, but was very joyful that the, the perk for teaching at this college was it was right on the ocean, and the faculty housing was a 12-story high-rise condo. So every night, uh, after a full day of teaching, I would take the elevator up to the eighth floor, open the door, kiss my wife, kiss the kids, and assume my favorite parenting position in a leather recliner behind the sports page of the Miami Herald. Everything was great. Uh, this particular day that I want to tell you about, though, I'm sitting there reading my paper, and all of a sudden I hear eight floors below, and I look down, it's the paramedics. That's not a big deal in Miami. Miami is oftentimes affectionately referred to as the city of uh, the newlywed and the nearly dead. So there's a lot of paramedic action in Miami. That, that wasn't a surprise. But this was because the siren kicked out and a loudspeaker came on. And the loudspeaker said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're within the sound of my voice, you're in a danger area. There's a hurricane eminently upon you. Because of your location by the water, there's also the possibility of a tidal wave. You are in grave danger. If you are within the sound of my voice, evacuate immediately. Go inland and north. I repeat, evacuate immediately. Go inland and north. Well, I remember feeling stunned and kind of slowly pulling the sports page down from my face. And in true male fashion, with death facing me, all I could think of was to crack a joke. I remember saying to my wife, you know, honey, when you live in Miami, there really aren't a lot of other options besides inland and north. <laughs> Who do you think they're clarifying that for? Are, are there people that are, oh my goodness, it's a hurricane, get in the car, let's drive into the ocean. <laughs> and she, the voice of reason in all these stories, says, okay, now look, you gotta get serious here, we, we gotta get out of here. And we were given this opportunity that on one hand, I hope you never have to experience, but on the other hand, it was very instructive. And here it is. Take everything from your home that you ever want to see again and put it in your car. Knowing that whatever you leave behind, you will never see them again forever, possibly. Well, if you're married, you know how this goes. 
She's looking at me, I'm looking at her. Words are not spoken, but non-verbally I can see, written all over her face. If I don't get creative, I'm getting zero in this car. <laughs> She's got it filled up already. So I remember saying, honey, I th- this is a democracy. Let's take turns picking what we want to put in the car. I'll be a gentleman, I'll let you go first. We'll do this till the car is full, and then we'll drive off. So she reluctantly agrees, and again, she's looking at me, I'm looking at her, and I'm embarrassed to say I'm looking at her thinking things like, well, I know something I want in this car, but I believe if I wait her out, she will eventually pick it as something she wants in the car, and that way I can get things she doesn't want. And we're doing this in milliseconds because we are about to die. But anyway, I'm looking at her, and I'm there, okay, honey, we need your first choice, we need your first choice. And so she finally makes her first choice. I remember thinking, wow, what a good choice. It wasn't where my head was at at the time. She chose as her first choice, the kids. <laughs> and so I'm like, good answer, babe. That's really a very selfless of you. And I said, I remember I had just finished seminary and I said, okay, I'm going down to my office. I'm going to get, I'm going to get books. I'm going to get my complete and exhaustive uh, commentaries on the bilingual bicuspid period as it relates to the Paleozoic anthropods in the coming Holocaust, you know, in quadraphonic sound. There, there's only one set of books like this in the world. And she, normally shy and quiet, kind of pops her cork. Books! Books! You're not taking books! You lose your turn! She says, you made me pick the kids anyway. I didn't get a real live first pick. (laughs) And she proceeded to make her first pick. Now, some wife, some mom, help me out here. What's the first thing she's going to pick as her thing? Somebody tell me. Pictures, photo albums. Every once in a while I hear makeup. But the correct answer is (laughs) pictures. Now, this is like a dinosaur story because we don't have photo albums anymore. Or everything's digital. But back then there were photo albums and I contend that a Butterworth photo album looks just like your photo albums if you still have them, all right? Okay, there's five kids in the Butterworth family, a daughter and four sons, and they're all J's. Joy, Jesse, Jeffrey, John, Joseph, all right? Here's the Butterworth family photo albums. Here's Joy at birth, Joy, two minutes old, Joy, Six minutes old, joy. 90 minutes old, joy. Half day old, joy. Full day old, right? Second, here's Jesse at birth. Jesse, two. Right? And the more kids you have, the worse it gets. Here's Jeffrey at birth. Jeffrey, first day of school. Here's John at birth. John, eighth grade graduation. Here's Joseph. Man, I got to get a picture of Joseph. I mean, I I just feel terrible for kids way down in the birth order. You can't even prove you grew up in this family, right? Your mother says, that's your earlobe in your older brother birthday shot. She's supposed to fill you with love and grace. So now, you know, we put all these photo albums in the backseat of joy and You know, I wish I was rich so I could make this story even more powerful. Leave the Monets, just take the Van Goghs, you know. Uh, But the truth is, if you've been through this, you understand it's it's really not a dollars and cents decision-making process, is it? We filled our little car and we drove off. And usually that's as far as I go to make the point that I want to make. And I'm amazed how many people come up and say, you know, you never finished that story. Did the hurricane hit? Did your house survive? Did you all perish? You know, there was a lot of empty, uh, you know. So the good news is 
the hurricane did not hit our house. Our house was spared, and um, we were fine, uh, although we discovered that the hurricane hit uh, inland and north. We drove right into that puppy, <laughs> and we realized that if it's this bad up here, it can't be that bad in Miami, so we drove back where the sun was shining and, and all was well. And I, as many years as I've told those stories, uh, I, I think in God's grand sense of humor, um, he wanted me to make sure I had a more updated version because uh, my wife and I, in, in just the last six weeks, have come to the conclusion that we've got, uh, we've got one more great adventure in our life before they put us in the old folks' home. So after over 30 years in California, just six weeks ago, we moved to Houston, <laughs> Texas, two weeks before the hurricane. And I remember standing on my new patio under the patio roof cover, watching it rain harder than it's ever rained before, trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen this time? Am I going to be one of the ones who leaves here in a canoe? Am I going to be face down floating along the water? What, what is going to happen? And miraculously, our home was untouched. We got through unscathed. And yet, like you, I would look at the TV and I'd see all the damage in Houston, except unlike you, it was just 10 minutes down the road for me. And I always wonder, it's a question I don't have any theological answer for, why are some homes spared and other homes destroyed? In the same way, why do some homes deal with divorce? And, and a death of a child, and grave financial issues, and marital discord, and uh, all kinds of dysfunction and pain in a home, and it seems like others come away unscathed. I, I don't know why, but yet God in his plan has allowed that to happen. And it became far more than academia for me when about 20, 25 years ago, uh, my first marriage ended in a very painful divorce. And it seemed like overnight, here I was, single again with five kids, trying to figure out how to make sense of life that certainly didn't go the way that I had planned. Why would you allow this, God? What is it that you want me to learn? How can I deal with this? And it absolutely leveled me. I was a basket case for a long time. And as I started to try to pick myself up and pick up the pieces and make sense of this, I, I was taken back one day to uh, my previous ministry position before I had gone out on my own. I've been out on my own now for 30 years. But prior to that, I worked for a wonderful Bible teacher named Chuck Swindoll. And part of my job description for Chuck was helping him answer his mail the radio ministry, Insight for Living, had just begun and he got swamped with mail and I would get letters of a crisis nature. You know, my marriage is hanging on by a thread. What can I do? Or we are going to divorce court next week. What can I do as a single again person? And why would God allow this? Or the cancer has come back. Or the bankruptcy court is taking it all. Really desperate, I'm ready to take my life kind of letters. 
And I found myself asking the question, so if I had written to Chuck and said, I don't understand why, but my marriage has ended and I can't make any sense of this. Why has life turned out so differently than I planned? How would, the, how would he respond? What would the response be? I know it would be thoroughly biblical, but what would it be? And of course, I remembered the go-to passage that we used with dozens and dozens of people to try to offer them hope and encouragement even in the midst of their brokenness. And it brought me hope and encouragement in the midst of my brokenness and pain. It's the well-known Old Testament story of when God miraculously parted the Red Sea so that Moses and the children of Israel could move through. And if you would indulge me, I'd love to walk you through that story again today, but with the whole angle of showing you how it works when life doesn't turn out like you planned, a very, very significant couple of verses in this story. But I invite you to begin, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. Let me set this up for you so that you can see the power in this prescription that Moses offers in dealing with our pain. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. You probably know the story. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for no less than 400 years. 400 years of night and day, day and night, seven day a week, slavery. Ultimately, they began focusing their prayer requests to the Lord that he would raise up from among them a leader, someone who could go nose to nose, toes to toes with Pharaoh, demanding their release. And God eventually granted their request by giving them the man Moses. Now, I have to stop there for a second because I find that fascinating because they, here's the children of Israel who have prayed for years. God, send us a leader. All we're looking for is a guy who can converse with Pharaoh to get our release. And if you go back to Exodus 3, the whole burning bush incident where God calls Moses Moses reluctantly accepts the leadership because of what? He says, well, I'll do it, but you got to know, I really don't do meetings. I'm not a speaker. I get very nervous, probably stuttered. You know, it's just not my deal. And can you imagine the children of Israel thinking, holy mackerel, we could have asked for pages of references and resume, international leadership experience. You know, all we asked for is a guy who could speak and we get Moses who stutters and can't even get a sentence out. This apparently was the beginning of the Yiddish expression, oy vey. <laughs> so Moses goes to Pharaoh time after time and says, let my people go. Now when you read that and says, that looks like a pretty short meeting, now you understand why. He could barely get that out. He's probably up all night rehearsing. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And you get the idea, okay, that's it. I'll see you in a couple weeks. You know, love to the family. He's out. Until we get to this passage in chapter five where Mo Moses in a verbal flurry says, Jehovah has said that I should say to you, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'll take the second part first. No, 
First part, who is Jehovah that I should listen to him? And God decided to answer that question. In uh, the language of a school teacher, he presented 10 audiovisual presentations in order to let Pharaoh know who he was. We know them historically as the 10 plagues. And by the time the 10 plagues uh, happened, it was pretty intense. So if you want a little, you know, one or two word outline of what we're talking about, write down as number one, misery. Okay? Misery. The children of Israel were enslaved. They were in misery. And then second, write down the word moving out. Moving out. Go to chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. The 10 plagues have taken place and we're finally at the 10th and final plague, the plague of death among the firstborn. Chapter 12, verse 30, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. You may recall how you've seen it on news even to this day. Eastern cultures, when someone dies, they mourn, but their mourning is very vocal. Is very ver the louder they moan and wail, the more uh, intimate they were with the deceased. And so here's Pharaoh who can't even sleep at night because the noise level is so loud in Egypt because it's visited every home. By the way, every home of an Egyptian... Not every home, including the children of Israel. There's another passage that says he made a distinction between the Egyptians and the children of Israel to where in the children of Israel, a dog did not even bark. The silence of the children of Israel versus the wailing of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh his advisors meet with him and say, I don't know how to say this. Your approval rating is tanking Everybody's really upset. Maybe it has something to do with Moses. Why don't you get those boys out of town? So he arose in the middle of the night in verse 31. He called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people, you and the sons of Israel. Go, worship Jehovah as you have said. And of course, that's why the book that you hold here is the book of Exodus. Exodus meaning exit. This is the moving out of the children of Israel out of Egypt moving towards the promised land. So we have misery, and then secondly, we have moving out, and then number three, we have a real turn of events, chapter 14, verse 5. Chapter 14, verse 5, the king of Egypt was told that the people fled. Pharaoh and his servants had, here it is, a change of heart toward the people and they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So we have misery, we have moving out. Third thing, write down mind changing, mind changing. Pharaoh finally got a good night's sleep and he woke up the next morning and said, what have I done? I've let all my slaves go. What a foolish thing to do. So he sends out his army to go recapture them and bring them back. And the Movement towards capturing the children of Israel coincides with the children of Israel coming up against the banks of the Red Sea. Now, let's get some perspective about what all this is. First of all, let's talk about how huge this crowd is. This is bigger than any movie that anybody could make. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible, Numbers. It's called the book of Numbers because in the book of Numbers, they count the people. They take a census. Actually, they do it twice. Two censuses, sensei, okay? And so they count, first of all, the, the number of men who are big enough and able enough to go to battle. And they come up with this number, 600,000. 600,000 fighting men, okay? Let's suppose for a second they're all married. 600,000 fighting men, 600,000 fighting women. That's a million, 200,000 people. You say they weren't all married back then. Certainly they were bachelors, and there probably were. But also remember, there was polygamy going on back then. So for every bachelor, there's the guy who's married to Lucy and Ethel and Betty and Wilma. So you can get a million two pretty conservatively just in adults. Now, let's add one more direct quote from Pharaoh while he's watching his slaves one day. He says, quote, Behold, how quickly they reproduce. They're having babies like crazy. I guess there was no TVs for the uh, slaves. And so the, all these kids are happening. And so if that's another million too, you got two and a half million people. You know, that's just with a, a kid. You know, so it, the numbers are phenomenal. Three million, just, just round up, three million. And all my CPA friends, you know, will add little tidbits like, do you realize if you march 40 abreast at a normal pace, it will take 24 hours for the last row to pass what the first row passed 24 hours earlier. And all these great statistics, there's a lot of people, folks, and they come up against the banks of the Red Sea and they stop dead and someone sees what it is and yells out, we're up against the Red Sea, somebody break out the boats. And someone else says, we've been slaves for 400 years. How many boats did you collect? <laughs> oh. Meanwhile, three million people later, there's a little kid tugging on his dad's bathrobe since that's what they all wore back then. He says, Dad, look behind us. There's an army. It's so cool. They got swords and shields and chariots. And the, the adult yells, we're under attack. Break out the weapons. And somebody yells, we've been slaves for 400 years. How many weapons did you collect? You know, we got the knife we made out of the spoon. But other than that, we're in trouble. So I'm going through all this because I want you to understand what we've got here, folks. I believe we have what we would call the classic impossible situation. You got a body of water in front of you, no boats. You got an army behind you, no weapons. You got nowhere to go on either side, just crazy wilderness. And I'll make it one step worse. Not only are you in it, you are Moses. You're the leader. You're responsible for it. Someone feels that pain today. Nice move, Dad. What were you thinking, dear? How can I be part of such a stupid family? Because you feel that pain of, man, I'm supposed to be in charge. I'm supposed to know how this all works. And here's Moses truly in a dilemma. Now, the problem in America in the 21st century is we've all seen too many movies about this. And we know how it ends. You know, Charlton Heston, he's going to see God, get his hair blown back, and he's going to go back, and he's just going to make it all good with special effects. Bada bing, bada boom. In reality, I want you to think about what it must have been like for Moses 
before all that miraculous stuff happened? How could he offer any hope or encouragement in the midst of this classic impossible situation? Because that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the pain of heartache in your home, aren't we? It just seems impossible. Such a good kid when they were little and now they're so rebellious. Such a nice marriage that just has gone sour. We were all so healthy and then the disease hit. Whatever it is, it just seems impossible. And that's why I believe, for me personally, the most powerful prescription I've ever been given in how to deal with my pain is in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The doctors usually say, take two of these and call me in the morning. I'm gonna give you four. And if you can take these, it might not all become sunny in the morning, but it will move you in the right direction. Here's the four things to write down. Number one, do not fear. Very first words out of Moses' mouth. Do not fear. Now, I've got friends who think this is a cop-out. That this is Moses, sounds like he's in la-la land. Sounds like he's in denial. Do not fear. Do not fear. We got an uncrossable body of water. We got an army behind. We got nowhere to go. What do you mean, do not fear? That, hello, Moses, wake up and smell the coffee. It's not denial. And any of us that have lived through the heartache of divorce or something of the same magnitude, you know what we're talking about. When he says do not fear, he's saying don't waste your energy on negative emotion. It's just going to drain you and wipe you out. I, I mean, I'll admit, and I'm sure there's at least one other person in this room who would have to say the same thing. When my marriage ended, it was so devastating to me. I took it as a personal, physical victory when I could get out of bed in the morning. And I needed a nap by 11 because I was so drained because all of life seemed to be sucked out of me. And so Moses is saying, don't let those negative emotions like worry and anxiety and fear, don't let them drain you dry. Centuries later, King Solomon would say it in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down. No wonder you can't get out of bed. You are so burdened down with, as you pointed out, the backpack of problems, great metaphor, that we can't function. Moses is saying, don't do that. Don't give in to fear. Well, it, then maybe we need to replace that fear with something else, and that's number two. Number one, do not fear. Number two, take your stand. Take your stand. Now, my translation of the scripture says stand by, but even it has a marginal note that it's better in Hebrew, literally, take your stand. And I don't know how it's going to work if we're going to see a DVD or a Blu-ray of the Red Sea for real when we get to heaven. But when Moses is saying this, I kind of see him digging his sandals into the shore by the Red Sea. Because he doesn't know a miracle's going to happen. For all he knows, they're going to have to fight their way. Get out those knives you made out of spoons. 
We might have to fight our way to survive, okay? Take your stand. Take your stand. Take your stand. We had a great breakfast with the men yesterday morning. And as I spoke to them, I talked a lot about uh, the fact that I feel very uh, honored that over the years I've been able to speak to 26 of the 32 National Football League teams. And I love speaking to these NFL teams. And when I go in, you know, you always look for the superstars first. Or, you know, and the superstars are always like the quarterback or the receiver or the running back or something like that. But after I kind of do that, I like to hang out with the linemen. Part of it is because linemen are the largest people God has ever made. All right? And I'm a big boy. I feel petite when I hang out with linemen. I don't worry about my dietary issues when I'm hanging out with an offensive tackle. Okay? And we'll kind of pal around and and they love it because nobody ever really cares anything about them. They, they just pick up their million-dollar check every week instead of their multi-million-dollar check and, you know, struggle through life. So, you know, I, I said to these guys one time, I said, look, I didn't play football as a kid. You know, I'm a great fan, but I, I've got the athletic ability of like tile grout. I'm not, I'm not a sports guy. So I have a question. When the, when the huddle breaks and you go to the line of scrimmage, why do you always get in that two or three or four point stance? What is that all about? And they're like, are you stupid? And I'm like, well, I guess I am on this guy. I have no idea. What's that all about? He says, well, it's simple. You get in that two or that three or that four-point stance because you're getting ready to get hit. You wouldn't dare go up to the line of scrimmage and say to the defender, whoo, man, you wiped me out on that last play. We're taking this next play off because I am tired. And just kind of stand there like this, which begs the old joke, what do you call a lineman who stands like this? You call him a former lineman, right? Because he'll never work again. He's going to get demolished on the next play. If you want to succeed as a lineman in the NFL, you need to take your stand. If you want to somehow get through the horrible pain that's in your family right now, you got to do not fear and you got to take your stand. And I know this is a personal story for me about the pain of my divorce, but let me just broaden it for a second with a personal opinion. There's a wonderful buzzword that everybody likes to throw around. Well, I can see that you must have come from a dysfunctional home. Well, folks, I've never met a functional home. <laughs> never. The, uh, <laughs> the only homes that think they're functional are also known as homes in denial. And I don't mean to mock, I don't mean to be silly, but dysfunction is just the big word for sin. We're all sinful. And as Bob said, the theme of this whole series is God's grace is the redemptive factor that enables us to get through. I mean, you don't know me real well, but I mean, my divorce just totally caught me off guard, like yours would you. So do not fear, take your stand. And then the third one, he says, the, the Lord will uh, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. I've reduced that to three words. Watch God work. Watch God work. Do not fear, take your stand. Watch 
God works. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will uh, uh, accomplish for you today. And of course, we know now that's going to be the parting of the Red Sea and that whole thing. But at that point, Moses is, is speaking as a, as a man of faith. Because what is our responsibility in watching God work? It's to trust him, right? That God knows even when we don't. God understands when we don't. When life doesn't turn out like we planned, it doesn't catch God by surprise. He knows. And so we watch him work as we lean into him, trust him, and enjoy the grace that his life brings to us. Do not fear, take your stand, watch God work. And then it gives one final one. It may be the toughest of the four. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you while you, number four, keep silent. Keep silent. For some of us, that's, that's hard. We want to, you know, God, what's this all about? And, you know, we just want to kind of, you know, get into all this. And, and I remember, if I can be totally honest, when I first read this, I thought, now that's odd. Keep silent in the middle of your pain because there's a whole nother book of the Bible that contradicts that thoroughly. The classic story of suffering, the book of Job. 42 chapters, chapter one, Job had it all, Job lost it all. Chapter 42, Job lost it all and gets it all back double fold. 40 chapters in between of, wait a minute, I thought they said keep silent. We could have reduced that book to a tiny little one. What's, about, what's the problem with all the yakety You know what it is? I think it's because it's not so much about verbiage as it is about attitude. Keep silent speaks to the question, who's in control? Who's in control? God, you know, if I had been in charge, I'd have done it differently. Thus, life doesn't turn out the way I planned. And God, should God say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't consult you on how we should run the universe, you and me. Doesn't work that way, does it? God is the one who's in control. Do not fear, take your stand, watch God work, keep silent. You take four of those and call me in the morning. It might not get completely sunny tomorrow morning, but it will move you in the right direction. And I encourage you to go home and read the rest of this chapter today because no sooner does Moses get this prescription off the, his lips, then God says, it's miracle time. And that Red Sea miraculously divides. I've read everything I can get my hands on on the parting of the Red Sea, and I can only conclude it's a miracle. I mean, the Red Sea divided, the millions of the children of Israel got across, and then as the army came into it, God essentially said, whoop, time's up, and the water reconverged. And in the confusion created by the water reconverging, the army destroyed itself. Now, I've had well-meaning, you know, skeptics come up to me and say, hey, blonde boy, you put an awful lot on that story. Archaeologists have proven it's not the Red Sea, buddy bubba, it's the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea is about six inches of water. A good stiff breeze could part that. So maybe you need to back off on your big miracle. And I think, nope. I won't, because you got a miracle here one way or the other. 
You've got what I choose to believe, that this massive body of water was miraculously divided so the children of Israel could march across, or you're left with the even greater miracle that a highly trained, finely tuned army destroyed itself in six inches of water. <laughs> Whoa, it's up to my ankles, stab me. It's cold, cut off my head. I believe that God used this miracle to offer encouragement to all of us. Wherever you are today, whatever your pain is, I want you to know that the God of grace is the God of hope. And he says to all of us, you know what? It's a mess. You probably contributed to it. It's a mess. But I want you to know that where I live, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's comfort, and there's encouragement. That's what you do when life doesn't turn out the way you planned. Let's pray, shall we?